Good morning. I'm Drew. I'm one of the pastors here. For the past several weeks, we've been listening to Jesus' parables in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. And while he's traveling, he tells these stories, these parables about what this thing called the kingdom of God is like. And who can be a part of it? Now, next week is Palm Sunday. We'll hear about Jesus' arrival, His grand entrance into Jerusalem, and how people responded to that. But this morning, we have one last parable to consider, and that's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you have a Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. This is such a simple parable. It's almost childlike in its simplicity. And yet simplicity can often be incredibly profound. If you've ever listened to Bach's Moonlight Sonata, it sounds like something a child could play. It's, it's monotonous. It seems almost droning. But there's sheer genius beneath the surface, in the bass, actually. And, and unless you look for it, unless you listen for it, you won't get it. You'll never really understand it. And the musicians in the room will all laugh at you. So let's look and listen for the profound in this simple parable. And let's do that this morning in three parts. We're going to look at the audience of this parable. We're going to look at the parable itself and the judgment that Jesus makes from it. The audience, the parable, and the judgment. First, the audience. Now, normally, Luke is very careful to describe whom Jesus is talking to. Just look at the preceding chapter. Chapter 17. Flick over there and start at verse 1. And he said to his disciples. That's the big crowd of Jesus' followers. Whoever's listening to him. Jump to verse 5. Now he's talking to his apostles. The inner 12. Okay, look at verses 11 and 12 now. On the way to Jerusalem, he was passing along between Samaria and Galilee. And as he entered a village, he was met by 10 lepers. Verse 14, and when he saw them, he said to them. Verse 20, he's talking to the Pharisees. And then in verse 22, he's talking to his disciples. But from here on out, Luke suddenly stops with the specifics. We really don't know whom Jesus is talking to anymore. In chapter 18, verse 1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Who is them? Is it the Pharisees? Disciples? Are the lepers still around? Some other group that we don't know about? We don't know. And this ambiguity only intensifies at the beginning of our passage in verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. 
It's a little bit like driving on I-81 and seeing a siren come up behind you. And you think, surely he's not coming for me. And so you put on your blinker, as you always do. And you switch from the left lane to the right lane. And then the most terrible thing happens, right? The siren follows you. And half a mile later, the siren is still trailing you. What do you do in that situation? You pray. Yes. And you also pull over. We can multitask here, can't we? So you see where I'm going with this. Unless you are absolutely certain that Jesus is not talking to you, he probably is. It's time to pull over. This parable is about you. It's about me. I believe Luke leaves the audience ambiguous here on purpose. Because here's the thing about righteous people like us. We like to listen to Jesus' parables for other people. We like to look around the sanctuary and make sure so-and-so is here for such a time as this. We like to treasure these words in our hearts Not for our own growth and self-evaluation, but in order to look down on people who don't treasure these words in their hearts. But not this time. Luke won't let us. Jesus won't let us. And it's a good thing. Because Jesus' disciples are always in danger of Pharisaic behavior. You see that word in verse 9, trusted. Several other translations render it convinced. Jesus told this parable to some who had convinced themselves that they were righteous. It's actually the same word the Bible uses throughout for belief and faith. And that's the rub here. Self-righteousness isn't just a character flaw. It's a different religion altogether. Having an attitude of smugness, looking down on people, even feeling superior to other people. These are make or break issues for Jesus. God's grace makes us gracious. God's mercy makes us merciful. God's love makes us loving. And if it's not, if it's not doing that, this isn't just a chip in the paint. This is a massive gaping hole in the foundation of our faith. And it's time to repent and go back to the beginning. So that's the audience. Or it's not the audience. My point is that we don't know the audience. And so we should assume Jesus is talking to us. To you and me. And so 
we need to hear this. So let's listen. Let's listen to the parable itself. Look with me at verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Immediately, we're introduced to two characters, and these characters teach us two lessons. A lesson about pride and a lesson about humility. First, a lesson about pride. Jesus begins this parable with the Pharisee. And the idea we must, absolutely must, get out of our heads about Pharisees is that they were always the bad guys. That's a foil that modern people use who want to divide faith and good works. I'm not overstating it. We will completely misunderstand this entire parable if we think that Pharisees in general were the bad guys. The Pharisees were the good guys. They were the ones who kept God's laws while everybody else was leaving them behind. And look, Roman laws were so much easier, so much more fun to obey than Jewish laws. Eat whatever you want, have sex with whomever you want, no tithing, no Sabbath observance. Good riddance, right? Live for the weekend. This isn't too hard to imagine because what I've just listed is simply a totally secularized lifestyle, a life lived without reference to a personal, intervening, directing God. It was like that in the Roman Empire. Thousands upon thousands of Jews We're simply giving up on God and going with the flow of the occupying power. But the Pharisees were the weirdos walking against the bedway. They were the ones rallying, encouraging everybody to keep obeying God, to not walk away, to not be deceived by the empty promises of the world, to stay faithful and true, to keep God's covenant and pray for deliverance. So, look. Don't write this guy off. He's not bad. He's good. Every day he strives to be righteous. Look at verses 11 and 12. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, when I was growing up, there was a playground phrase kids would say. Let's see if you know it. It ain't bragging if it's true. true. That's right. Except it's wrong. (laughs) Right? It's bragging when it's about something you've actually done. Uh, If it's not about something you've actually done, it's what? Lying. (laughs) But this Pharisee isn't lying. He really isn't like other men. He's really quite exceptional. He's kept the law. In fact, he's gone above and beyond the law. Jews were required to fast only once a year on the Day of Atonement. But this Pharisee fasts twice a week. And tithing. 
Jews were expected to give back to God a tenth of all their crops. But this Pharisee gives back to God a tenth of everything he buys. He thinks, what if the seller didn't tithe this? I better tithe it just in case. Look, this Pharisee really is innocent. There is such a thing. We don't need to be afraid to call a spade a spade. There's actually a whole category of psalms called psalms of innocence, where a person pleads their innocence before God and asks Him to vindicate them and give them what they're due. That's all right. You can do that. That's good. This man, this Pharisee, is innocent. And he even thanks God for it. Did you catch that in verse 11? He, he says, God, I thank you. And what does he thank God for? He gives thanks that God's Spirit has performed a great work in his life. That God's great act of liberation has freed him from the chains of greed and selfishness and has made him worthy to enter the kingdom of God with his head held high. He doesn't just say, God, look how wonderful I am. Aren't you proud of me? To describe this Pharisee like that would be a malicious caricature. Characters like that belong in cheap novels, not the Bible. And even if he did consider himself to be a good person, a great person, he still thanks God for it. So the Pharisee praises the mercy of God. What could possibly be wrong about that? The problem is that the Pharisee is measuring his own righteousness by looking down at others. I wonder if any of you have ever had a moment when you've walked into a room, scoped it out, looked around, and thought to yourself, I'm better than these people. Has that ever happened to you? And look, we can spin it any way we want. We can put it in Christian talk. I'm more gifted than these people. I'm more favored than these people. As if, as if they're the extras of a movie that's all about me where I'm God's star. And they're the backdrop. I take my faith more seriously than these people. Maybe I'll just drop the word liturgy and see what people do. Right? When that happens to you, watch out. Watch out. It's not just a character flaw. It's a different religion altogether. You know, I sometimes get this vibe from Christian testimonies. We like to paint our life before Christ in the darkest possible colors. It's this almost masochistic spiel of self-accusation, and then we talk about how we came into contact with the Spirit of God, and, and now we're enlightened, and, and now everything is wonderful, and we're the liberated children of God. And the fact 
is that this does actually happen. We can have this experience with God. And anybody who has had it will be grateful to God. But the more we talk about it, the more we announce to the world uh, these stories of our experience with God, the more our attention becomes focused upon ourselves. And suddenly, this, this whole thing has become this sort of pious and vain autobiography. Sure, God picked me, but I was pretty good raw material. <laughs> you know, God must have found something really special in me. Otherwise, he wouldn't have entered into my life the way he did and, and given me this privilege above so many others. Pharisaic pride is one of the most infectious diseases of Christianity. And it all grows out of comparing ourselves to others. Do you have this kind of pride in your life? Has this kind of pride, this sly, subtle pride, flown under the radar and gone undetected in your relationship with God? Sniff it out and get rid of it. It will destroy any trace of grace in your heart. And it will get you nowhere with Jesus. So there's the lesson about pride. Now a lesson about humility. Look with me at verse 13. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, we need to do with this tax collector what we did earlier with the Pharisee. That is, we need to dislodge our preconceived notions of him. Because we like to imagine this man, through all the faults, as this humble pauper, this Bob Cratchit, do-gooder type. In reality, tax collectors were more like financial predators. A modern-day example. My family and I moved to Harrisonburg from Baton Rouge. And in August 2016, uh, actually when we were moving out of the city, or at least trying to, Baton Rouge experienced the flood of the century, quite literally. It was just catastrophic. 146,000 homes were heavily damaged, many of them unsalvageable. Tens of thousands of people were displaced. People died. Pets died. It was all just really, really sad. And shortly afterward, what happened was, was these contractors came in from all over the country offering to repair people's homes, except, footnote, with an astronomical price. And, of course, the people had to agree to it because they were desperate. What are they going to do? Be homeless? And so these contractors would come and do a really shoddy job. They'd do the job halfway, they'd do it a quarter of the way, and then they would just leave. Never to be heard from again, never to be seen again. 
This kind of stuff happens all the time with, with natural disasters. Greedy people prey on the poor, on the oppressed. They take advantage of them because all they care about is putting money in their own pocket. That's what this tax collector was probably like. He was a thief. He was a predator, an abuser of the poor. And yet his posture betrays real and genuine repentance. Look back at verse 13. He's standing far off. Clearly, he senses his own unworthiness. He's bowing to the ground, covered in shame. And he's beating his breast. A gesture, by the way, of despair that was appropriate only by women at a funeral. In other words, this tax collector is so overwhelmed by the chasm he feels exists between God and him that he is oblivious to his surroundings. And this is the essence of humility. It's the freedom of self-forgetfulness. It's when you stop comparing yourself to other people all the time. It's when you stop connecting every experience, every conversation with yourself. It's when you actually stop thinking about yourself and you deal with whatever's right in front of you. Whoever's right in front of you. Whatever's most important. You see, when someone really turns to God with a burdened conscience... They don't think of other people at all. And like this isn't selfish. When someone comes to God with true repentance, a true turning away from themselves, they allow themselves to be utterly alone with God. And this is why the tax collector's attitude is completely genuine and radically honest. He doesn't compare himself with other people. He measures himself upward. God himself is the standard. And when he measures himself by that standard, he is suddenly aware of how far removed he is. All he can say is, God, be merciful to me, literally, the sinner. It's more than simply an apology. This is temple language, sacrificial language. What it literally means is make atonement for me. Make a sacrifice for me. Wipe out all my sins, even the ones I can't remember and can't repent of. Lord, I've defrauded so many people. I've stolen from so many people. I can't even remember how many sins I've committed. I need a sacrifice that's going to cover all those things. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, what does Jesus have to say about this? What judgment does he make about these two men? Look at verse 14. I tell you, Jesus says, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. The Pharisee and the tax collector each receive what they ask for. 
The Pharisee asks for nothing and so receives nothing. It's not like God's unwilling to give mercy. But the tax collector is the one whose small faith sees through to the great heart of God. He receives exactly what he asks for. Mercy. Jesus says only one of them returns to their home justified. Only one of them returns to their home in right relationship with God. Only one of them has true faith, saving faith, genuine faith, and it's the tax collector. This is crazy talk. This is utterly shocking. The Pharisee had obeyed all of God's commandments. He was part of the group calling Israel back to faithfulness to God. Back to the law. He was rallying people. Back to God having supreme authority and reigning. But he didn't ask for mercy. And that's because he had lived a life up to this point where he no longer saw his need for it. He didn't need it. So he didn't ask for it. So God didn't give it. The tax collector did. And Jesus says this parable points us to the final law court of God. If you want to know right now who's in the kingdom and who has yet to enter it, this is tricky ground, don't look simply at the outward badges of virtue. Not even if God commanded these virtues. Tithing, church attendance, charity, sexual purity... Not even if it's the work of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, and so on. No, if you want to see where this final vindication is anticipated in the present, look for where there is genuine penitence. Genuine casting oneself on the mercies of God. This man went down to his house justified. Those are among the most comforting words in the whole gospel. Won't you let them be true of you? On the cross, Jesus revealed the great mercy of God. This whole parable is anticipating that. Jesus is on the outer edges of Jerusalem. He's about to enter into it and give his life, not for those who are already righteous, not for those who have already convinced themselves of their own righteousness, but for those who are broken and weary and desperate, like the tax collector, like the financial predators in Baton Rouge, like the extortioners, unjust, adulterers, like you, like me. All of life comes down to whether or not we've accepted this mercy. It's not about how good we are. It's not about how obedient we are. 
It's about grace. And it's about allowing that grace to work so deeply in us that we become gracious like our Heavenly Father. Have you accepted that grace? Have you trusted in God's mercy? If you haven't, come to the waters of baptism on Easter. Put your faith in Christ and be born again. Let God be merciful to you. Let Him justify you and wash you and save you. And if you have trusted in God's mercy, come to the table. Come to the bread and the wine, the body and blood of our Lord Jesus given just for you. Just for you. Just don't be shocked when you see that the one serving you is a tax collector. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.